the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new 950 WTLN. This is your hour when Orlando Magic Senior Vice President Pat Williams sits down and speaks with authors who have written books on topics of interest and insight for listeners like you. And now, here's your host, Pat Williams. Well, we always love having you listen here on the Pat Williams Weekend Power Hour. On WTLN AM 950 in Orlando, uh, Jeff Sennis engineers our show each weekend, and we're always grateful to him. Uh, Andrew Herdliska is our producer, and I'm really happy that uh, Shane Claiborne joins us from Philadelphia. Uh, He and Tony Campolo have a book called Red Letter Revolution. I've really been wanting to have Shane on this show for quite a while. What if Jesus really meant what he said? Thomas Nelson, the publisher. Shane, it's really wonderful to talk to you. How you doing? I'm doing great, Pat. It's good to be on your show. Good to talk to folks down here in Florida. What was it like working with the legendary Tony Campolo on this book? <laughs> well, I, you know, I've known Tony for, I don't know, 20 years or something. I had Tony for sociology uh, in my undergrad, and uh, I guess in some ways, uh, I learned to preach from Tony, and um, we've always done a ton of stuff together, but this book was real special because we wanted to have this intergenerational conversation about the continued, um, you know, changing of the church and engaging the world that we live in, and, and uh, so it was a blast. It was a real good time. Well, 27 fascinating topics. Let's get started, Shane. Uh, part one is called Red Letter Theology. And uh, the first topic you write about, collectively, the two of you, is simply called On History. Uh, what's that about? Well, as we, we look at the, the kind of continual emergence of Christianity, uh, you know, here, part of what we saw was that um, a lot of the what people have experienced from Christianity hasn't always reminded them of Jesus. And so, you know, the Barna Research Group did a study a few years ago showing that, uh, well, they went state to state, and they asked young non-Christians, what do you think of when you hear the word Christian? And the number one answer was anti-gay, anti-homosexual. Number two was judgmental. Number three was hypocritical. And the list is just heartbreaking as you read the things that, you know, non-Christians think of when they when they hear the word Christian. Uh, and you start to go, wow, how did, how did we get that reputation, you know? And, and um, what we, what we, kind of talk about in the book is that a lot of what we focus on in the church is the things that we believe, but our real crisis isn't just right believing, but right living, you know, and, 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 uh, I was, uh, you know, I grew up in the Bible Belt in East Tennessee, and I think I became a believer a long time before I knew anything about being a disciple or being a follower of Jesus. Uh, and Gandhi said it really well one time. He said, uh, I love Jesus. I just wish the Christians took him more seriously. Mm. So that's part of what we're really saying in the book, is the things that we believe are important. But in the end, Jesus says that they they will know that we are Christians by our love. And when a lot of us have been known for other things, for how we've condemned or judged other people's, uh, you know, other people, it must really break God's heart. So that's really what we're talking about, is a Christianity that's known by our love, uh, a Christianity that looks like Jesus again. The second topic is simply called On Community. Uh, What is that about? It's hard to miss in the scripture that, that that one of the fundamental things that we're called to is to live in community. You know, but everything in our world is teaching us this, these other kind of uh, messages of individualism. You know, and and independence. And yet, you look at the scripture, and when the first humans made, it's not pronounced real good until they're together. You know, helping each other. And you look at Jesus saying, where two or three of you gather in my name, I'm with you. Since the disciples out in pairs were made in the image of a God that reflects this plurality of oneness, you know, this commun- community uh, to us. And so that that's 
part of what we discovered in Philadelphia was, you know, as I was studying with Tony and studying undergrad at Eastern outside Philly, I started reading about the early church in the book of Acts. And it says they were all together and they shared everything they had. No one claimed any of their possessions were their own. And it says right there in Acts, and there were no needy persons among them. And we caught this vision for uh, really inspired by that early church. A bunch of my, my college friends and I pulled our money together and we uh, started living out that vision here in North Philly. And, and now it's, you know, changed over 20 years. We've got half a dozen houses or so within walking distance of each other and a bunch of gardens and things like that. But we're still inspired by that same vision of sharing. And uh, I, I think that's one of the things that's it's almost kind of a lost art in America is, is, is community, and yet you look for uh, half the megachurches, their curriculum is how to get people into small groups, <laughs> you know? and you look around the world, and some of the, the richest corners of the world have the highest rates of loneliness, depression, and suicide, because I think a lot of times we, we buy into this idea that, that we're just meant to you know live in a detached nuclear family, but we're really made to love and be loved and to live in community, so that's, that's what we're after. Shane, a lot, a lot of different forms you can find it in, too. So we're not saying, you know, everybody's got to live just like we do in Philly, but I think all of us are really longing to be known and to uh, live with some degree of accountability and friendship with other folks and share money and life together. Shane Claiborne is our guest, along with Tony Campola. The book is called Red Letter Revolution. Uh, what if Jesus really meant what he said? Third topic I want you to talk about, Shane, is simply on the church. Well, the, as as we think about what it what it means to be church, uh, you know, I, I grew up going to Sunday school. I grew up uh, uh, Methodist, actually, but then I, I started to read uh, the stuff John Wesley said. You know, John Wesley was a wild man. He, he's saying things like, "If I have money in my hands, I get it out of my hands as quick as I can, lest it make its way into my heart." You know, and and, and the the real radical nature of so many of the heroes of the church, like St. Francis, who the Pope's named after, you know, like, what, what does it really mean to be church? And I think um, a lot of us that, uh, on the younger side, I mean, it, it's it's unmistakable that the church is losing young people at an astronomical rate. Um, but I think that what we think is that we've got to have, you know, better music or smoke, you know, on the stage or like some kind of jumbotron or something. But I'm convinced that we're going to continue to lose young people uh, in the church, not because we didn't entertain them, but because we didn't dare them to take Jesus seriously in light of the brokenness of the world that we live in. And it, it won't be because we made the gospel too hard, but because we made it too easy. Because I think a lot of young people are looking at the world, and they're, they're going, well, all the, all the Christians are talking about is life after death. Like, doesn't Jesus have anything to say about life now, and, you know, the inequality between the super rich and super poor and all the violence and wars, and and we would say, absolutely. The kingdom of God that Jesus talked about wasn't just something that we hope for when we die, but something we're, we're to bring on earth while we live. And uh, so, so that vision uh, for the kingdom now, I think, is really what church is about. And, and um, so we, you know, we, we, we believe that the gospel lived out of dinner tables and living rooms and lived out of you know, not just Sunday services on a weekend, but but really uh, every moment of our lives. So we try to integrate that, you know. And we, we do things like go to services on Sunday, and we do morning prayer every morning in our neighborhood. But uh, the Gospels, you know, it's lived out in the streets. It's lived out in the world uh, for us. So, so that's, I think, really what church uh, is about. And, and as a lot of people jump ship, we're trying to encourage them, you know, not to give up on the church. It was uh, St. Augustine that's attributed to saying, the church is a whore, but she's my mother. You know, so this this thing that has given birth to us, it may be she may be fairly dysfunctional, but like instead of complaining about the church that we've experienced, let's work on becoming the church that we dream of. Give me a minute before the break here, Shane, on liturgy. On liturgy, is, is that what you said? Yes, L I T U R G Y. That's the fourth topic you get into here. Yeah. Well, you know, I don't know that I knew what that was growing up, but the more I've 
come to study church history, I've seen the value in this idea of public worship, or that we reorient our schedule and our lives around the bigger story of what God's doing in the world. So to to think of our days not just as holidays, but as holy days, you know, as, as days that we can remember different saints and figures through history, and days that we can... Um, get into a rhythm of life where we practice a Sabbath day each week, you know, and uh, for this period of Lent that, that we, you know, the, the period leading up to Easter, that we, uh, we, we see those as kind of seasons within the church, just like, you know, fall and summer and winter and autumn, you know, these, these, these spring are seasons in the world, they're seasons within the church. So, uh, but, but I think sometimes we've hidden behind liturgy and worship. So what we're hoping to do in books like Common Prayer that we, we created together is read the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. So bring the liturgy really into the world that we live in. Shane Claiborne, our guest. We've got more after this on the Pat Williams Weekend Hour. It's WTLN AM 950 in Orlando. More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on the new 950 WTLN. I will never forget the day my son Jeremy told me he hated me and slammed the door in my face. I'm behavioral therapist Janet Lehman. Behavior problems can turn the child you love and your life into a nightmare. That's why my husband James and I created the Total Transformation, the step-by-step program that shows you how to fix the worst behavior problems and get your child to respect and listen to you again. No matter what the behavior, defiance, backtalk, angry outbursts, disrespect, we can help you stop it. Now you can get the total transformation for free. All you need to do is get the program and let us know how it works for you. You can keep it forever for free. Limited number of free programs available. Call now. 1-800-801-9691. 1-800-801-9691. That's 1-800-801-9691. 1-800-801-9691. Now here's something you don't hear on the radio every day. Someone who can't see. I am totally blind. So I go through periods when I'm unable to sleep at night. And I feel like I'm constantly running but can never quite catch up. But this isn't a sleep problem. It's something called non-24 hour disorder. Learn more about non-24 by calling 855-856-2424 or visiting learnmorenon24.com. Hello, this is Scott for Scott's Tough Builder Lawn Food. Lads, your lawn is a living, breathing thing and right now it's hungry, famished even. So it's up to you to feed it and feed it today with Scott's Tough Builder Lawn Food. A prompt feeding now in early spring and another in late spring strengthens and helps protect your lawn from future problems. Learn more at scotts.com. Go on, put down some Scott's Tough Builder Lawn Food this weekend. Feed your lawn. Feed it. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour. On the new 950 WTLN. And now, here's Pat. Shane Claiborne is with us from Philadelphia. Uh, He and Tony Campolo have written Red Letter Revolution. What if Jesus really meant what he said? Uh, The next topic I want you to talk about, Shane, is on saints. What's up here? (laughs) Well, the, the, uh, the fact is that there's so many great folks that have lived out the faith throughout history that part of what, what I think we've got to do is discover new heroes, you know, to, to read about the lives of folks who have taken Jesus seriously and, and it's affected their whole life. So uh, I, I know, you know, St. Francis, who, who, the Pope's namesake, you know, is I can't imagine a better hero for the day that we live in than uh, Francis, who was a you know avid environmentalist, he was a lover of the poor, he was a conscientious objector to war and violence, and so I think it's it's uh, discovering folks like Francis and and uh, uh, so many of the folks that have lived throughout history, but also not saints with a big S. You know, I think there's uh, it was Luther that said there's a sinner and a saint inside every one of us. You know, and they're kind of at war with each other. But what the saints do is they leave off the fragrance of God in the world, and they kind of uh, leave the scent of heaven on earth. And so we can celebrate them, and they can call us to the best uh, uh, of who we can be, you know, not to become them, but to become us. And then I want you to talk about on hell. 
Well, the the topic of hell is one that I grew up like literally, uh, you know, thrown in my face. I can remember this skit in youth group called Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames, where we we did this skit and you know the there was a bus crash and uh, all the kids died and the demons came and they dragged they drug all the the kids to hell that didn't know Jesus and then they you know they gave an altar call. And uh, it might have worked, you know, I think it literally did kind of scare the hell out of us. But like, like in the end, it, I, I began to realize that authentically, we don't just choose Jesus because we're scared of hell or because we want crowns and mansions in heaven, but we choose Jesus because he's good and because he shows us what God is like and what love is like with skin on. And so I think one of the dangers of hell is, is um, scaring people into heaven uh, r- rather than what I think is is. Uh, so true is that our, our the gospel spreads best not through force or through fear, but through fascination and through love and the contagion of, of God's love. Um, and so I think we would do well to recapture that when, when you know, uh, a lot of Christians have been known for their, their hellfire messages. I mean, you look at Jesus and uh, the messages that he's preaching are, are pretty uh, categorically different from that. It's not that he doesn't talk about hell. Uh, he does, but often it's in ways that we, we wouldn't even imagine that, that you know, the, uh, um, the rich man is in hell and the poor man is in heaven is one of Jesus' stories. So I think there's a lot about hell, you know, that uh, we don't know, but we can trust that, that God is love and God is good and that Jesus is the way, and we proclaim that with all that we are and we trust God with the rest. Next topic, Shane, on Islam. Well, having been to Iraq a few times and Afghanistan and living on a street where, you know, I have Muslim friends and neighbors, I think part of where I had to begin was with what I, with, with my misunderstandings. And I think that, that uh, Islam has been terribly misrepresented in the world, uh, just as Christianity has. And, you know, folks have seen, Christians that hold signs that say God hates fags. Uh, they've seen Christians burn the Quran. They've seen terrible expressions of Christianity, if they're even Christianity at all. You know, uh, they don't always look a lot like Christ. Um, and I think the same thing can be true of a lot of expressions of Islam, is that sometimes we've only seen the most terrible uh, and, and, and uh, the, the, you know, hate hijacks the headlines, and I, I think we've seen that all over. But what was amazing to me was in Iraq, um, I worked closely. I was there as a Christian peacemaker with the Christian peacemaker teams, but we worked closely with the Muslim peacemaker teams. And I think what we saw in that was that as a Christian, I should be one of the best collaborators in the world. I mean, there's there's a point where Jesus' disciples come up to him and they say, hey, there's a guy down the street that's doing the same stuff we're doing, but he's not one of us. Should we tell him to shut up? And Jesus says, no, no, if, if he's not against us, he's for us. And I think a lot of times we Christians have been the, the quickest to say, if we don't believe the same thing, then really what do we have in common? What can we do together? And I think that's such a shame because I think there's a lot of stuff that we can act together on. And then in that, um, that is a part of how we earn the, the right to share where we found hope and, and to speak into each other's lives. So when I got back to Iraq, the first group of folks to invite me to speak was a group of Muslim folks. Uh, and in fact, uh, a, a group of them told me they were reading our book in their mosque doing a small group study on it. And I was like, wow, <laughs> this is awesome. And uh, one of one of the groups um, that is, inspired me is American Muslim Voice. And part of what they said is that we fear people because we don't know them. And so their motto has become from fear to friendship. And they have Muslim families that are opening up their dinner tables and creating fellowship with Christians and others. And I think that's the kind of stuff that disarms and that moves the world uh, closer to what God wants it to be. And in the end, I'm still very evangelical. I want folks to know and experience Jesus' love and salvation. Um, uh, But I think one of the biggest obstacles to that has been Christians who are so aggressive with their with our mouths, but have so little to show of God's love with our lives. And then the final point I want you to talk about, Shane, on the red letter theology is simply on economics. What do, what do you write here? 
Undoubtedly, one of the biggest ethical issues of our time has to be the disparity between the super rich and super poor. Uh, you know, a study just came out that 85 people now own the same amount of wealth as 3.5 billion people. And so as we look at that, I mean, you know, 85 people, you get them in one room, own the same amount as half the world's population. And you see a very different vision in Scripture, uh, which is, this day our daily bread, you know, the, the, this idea that Proverbs says, give me neither poverty nor riches, for in my poverty I might be forced to steal, and in my riches I might forget my God, that our prayer is that everybody would have enough. And, and I think that one of the, 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 the things that we're realizing is that uh, when, when a handful of people have masses of wealth, more than the entire economy of countries, then it's a very fragile world that we live in and very out of sync with what God intended it to be. So uh, it was Gandhi that said, there's enough for everyone's need, but there's not enough for everyone's greed. So this very simple command that we're to love our neighbor as ourselves redefines our possessions, right? It redefines what is enough when we realize that in America, the average person is consuming the same amount as 500 people in Africa. So what does it mean to love our global neighbor as ourselves? Well, maybe it means to to redefine what is enough, and the, not because the stuff's so bad, but because we want everybody to, to have enough food for this day and to have, you know, mosquito nets that will, will save their lives and they only cost $3. So, you know, when we're choosing between a cup of coffee or, a, you know, a mosquito net, maybe we, we think differently about the way that we spend money. Uh, but I'm, I'm a big fan. I'm a big believer that it's not about guilt. Uh, and uh, it was Mother Teresa that, taught me that. I spent a lot of time with her in, in India, and uh, at one point someone said to Mother Teresa, I couldn't live like you live if someone paid me a million dollars. And she said, I wouldn't do it for a million dollars either. I'd do it because it's what I'm made for. I'd do it because it's, it's, it's true joy in life. And, and so in the end, I think that's really what we're talking about, is, is what does it really mean to live the life that, that God made us for? Shane Claiborne is our guest, and a fascinating one. Red Letter Revolution is the name of the book. Uh, the second part of your book is Red Letter Living. And the first topic, uh, Shane, is simply on family. Uh, what do you tell us here? I, I grew up with a really little family. I, I was an only child and an only grandchild. Um, so that, that's a, a big burden for a young guy to carry, Pat, you know, and, and I... <laughs> I uh, remember, you know, thinking, wow, this is, I have such a small family because my dad died when I was nine years old. And uh, so it's basically been my mom and I. And then I read this verse uh, in the gospel where Jesus is talking about when we leave our biological family, we gain a new family. Uh, Mark chapter 10, where we, this vision that when, when we, we, we have an idea that what's born of the flesh is flesh flesh, but what's born of the spirit is spirit. And I realized that, wow, this idea that we're born again means that we've got sisters and brothers all over the world. It means that we're a part of a really huge, transnational, you know, multi-ethnic, wild, wonderful family, which is also heartbreaking because it's so dysfunctional, you know. So we've got, if we really believe that we're family, we've got sisters and brothers that are starving to death because they don't have enough food, you know, and so I think the responsibility that comes with rebirth um, became real to me, and I think that's still one of the most uh, radical notions in the gospel is this idea that if we really believe uh, that we're born again, how does that affect us? You know, if, if, if it's as tragic for someone else's kids to go hungry or to be abused as if they were our own children, um, that, that's an amazing thing. So I I'm, you know, still wrestle with that every day, but I, I believe when it comes to uh, uh, the, the, the idea that we're to live without the kind of borders that, be, you know, a, lo- a lot of times our, our biggest infatuation with security is to protect our family or, you know, what if they did this to us or we fortify our borders. And, you know, all of these things are, are because of earthly identities like our bi- biological identity, our ethnic, our national identity, and Jesus is blowing those out of the wa- water and suggesting that God's love doesn't stop at those borders. God's love doesn't end with your own biological family. It doesn't end with your own nation. So 
that affects how we, you know, think about immigration, how we think about war, how we think about everything. If our identity is in Christ, and that's uh, that's our truest uh, identity. The next topic I want you to talk about, Shane, is on being pro-life. I love that Jesus said, you know, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And when when I think of uh, the the this idea that we that every human being is created in the image of God, that every person has the divine stamp on them, then that should affect how we think about so many of these hot topic, you know, social issues. But the political rhetoric has polarized us into camps. And I think especially young folks are refusing to succumb to the culture wars of the, you know, religious right and the secular left and the Republicans and Democrats. And really what a lot of us are saying is that we want a consistent ethic of life. We want to be pro-life from the womb to the tomb. And so that affects how we think about abortion, but it also affects you know, how we think of the death penalty, it affects how we think of uh, war, it affects how we think of immigration, uh, I mean, poverty, all of these things, gun violence. Uh, so so it, how beautiful it is when I think we see a growing movement of young Christians that are, are looking for that consistent ethic of life. Um, and and uh, hopefully we will see more and more of that, I think, frame the conversations in, in our culture uh, and, and, you know, I always point to Mother Teresa as a champion for life and because she didn't, she wasn't known as this, you know, pro-life woman because she wore T-shirts that said uh, abortion is murder, um, but because she took in teenage moms. She took in orphans that were abandoned in train stations. And so I also believe that our, our convictions come with responsibility. So, you know, if we really are pro-life, then we should have some foster kids to show for it. We should have some some uh, folks that we've taken into our homes that have come out of prison, you know, uh, to, to really live out um, those, or else all we have is political ideology. And ideology, you know, alone has never changed the world. We've got 30 seconds, Shane, on environmentalism. Well, if we if we love the Creator, then we can't help but, but care for the creation. And uh, I'll just tell you one quick story. One of the kids on our block came to my house and drug me down the street. It was so hysterical. I thought there was some kind of emergency, and all that was just to show me a firefly. And he goes, what is that? And I said, that was a really creative day for God, when God said, I'm going to make a bug that's but glows in the dark. And I think when we see that wonder light up in kids and people again, it's hard to realize, you know, hard to miss that we have a beautiful creator. Shane, I can't thank you enough. Uh, a wonderful half hour. And my best to Tony Campolo, please. Absolutely. I'll, I'll tell him, and uh, let's do it again sometime. Thanks for all you're doing, brother. Shane Claiborne, our guest, the book Red, Red, Red Letter Revolution. We've got more after this. It's the Pat Williams Weekend Power Hour, WTLN AM 915 Orlando. Of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on the new 950 WTLN. Right now, until March 18th, the flooring experts at Lumber Liquidators have huge deals going to fit any taster budget, like quality laminates for an amazing 39 cents a square foot, versatile engineered hardwood for just $169, even spectacular Bellawood pre-finished Bolivian rosewood for an incredible $299 a square foot. Pick up free samples at hundreds of stores nationwide, plus special financing available and easy professional installation or expert advice for DIYers. But hurry, this sale ends March 18th. Visit LumberLiquidators.com to find a store near you. Geico presents Strange Savings Stories. Astronomers detected an interstellar transmission. It stated, Geico, 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. The implications were staggering. Was the cosmos telling us we could all save hundreds on car insurance with Geico? Or did their radar merely pick up a signal from the nearby Rufus and Clyde's morning show? We may never know. Geico, 15 minutes could save you 15% or more on car insurance. 
Hi, everybody. It's Pete Paquette, your morning host here at the new 950 WTLN. And I'd like to welcome back a computer program here on the weekends, very familiar to our listeners. It's Tech Talk and more, Saturday afternoons at 4, from Palm Tree Computer Systems and Jinx IT. They are the experts on any problem you might be having, downloads, uploads, software, hardware. You've got questions? These experts have the answers. And you never know when you could win something pretty cool. It's Tech Talk and more, now Saturday afternoons at 4, on the new 950 WTLN and WTLN.com. This is Dennis McKenzie for Families by Design. Strong families are designed by God. Do you want your family designed by God? For inspirational principles for today's families, listen to Families by Design with your hosts, Dr. Daniel Forbes and Dr. John Brooks. Families by Designs airs every Sunday at 9 p.m. That's Families by Design on the new 950 WTLN. Listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new 950 WTLN. And now, here's Pat. Shane Claiborne, our guest in that first half hour, who, along with uh, Tony Campolo, have written a book called Red Letter Revolution. Uh, Nancy Kester joins me. Uh, Nancy teaches religion at Augsburg College in Minneapolis. Uh, her new book is out on a fascinating woman of history, Harriet Beecher Stowe, A Spiritual Life. Nancy, good to visit with you, and I'm looking forward to this uh, discussion. Thank you. I appreciate being here. Fill us in briefly. Who was Harriet Beecher Stowe? Harriet Beecher Stowe was the author of Uncle Tom's Cabin, which came out in 1852, and it was an anti-slavery novel that helped really turn the tide of public opinion against slavery, and it was a major signpost on the way to the Civil War. So um, because of that, she became the most famous author in America during her generation. She wrote many more books, um, but Uncle Tom's Cabin was the one that really made her famous. You start this book with a chapter called This Old House. Uh, How do you open? What, What is in that first section, that first chapter? Well, the old house that I refer to was the um, religious tradition that Harriet um, Beecher grew up in. Her father was a minister in that tradition, and he was kind of like a handyman. He was uh, rehabilitating, changing, renovating, remodeling New England Calvinism, trying to bring it up to date. And so the old house was um, the church tradition that Harriet grew up in that was kind of under construction during her father's era. So as I wrote that, she lived with a lot of sawdust and noise and hammers and nails, so to speak, as her father was trying to make changes in that tradition. Where did she grow up? She grew up in New England. She was born in Litchfield, Connecticut, and lived in several different places in New England. So that was her heritage, but she moved out from beyond that, and her life became much broader uh, later on. The second topic you write about is your daughter, sir, exclamation point. Uh, what's happening here? What's happening there is that as, um, as a girl and as an adolescent, Harriet was very bright. She was an excellent writer. She had a vivid imagination. She loved to write, and she loved stories. And when she was a schoolgirl, she wrote an essay on whether, whether or not God can be known in the works of nature, which is a topic quite solemn for a schoolgirl, but in those days that was the kind of thing that they wrote about. Anyway, her essay um, won a competition, and her father was very, very pleased. But the essay was anonymous. He didn't know that it was, that it was his own daughter who had written it. And so when he asked the judges who was the author of that essay, They said, your daughter, sir. And so Harriet's father was very proud, and she wrote later on that to have pleased her father was beyond all youthful fantasies. She loved her father, she respected and admired him, and that she could write something that would please him was to her a great triumph. Now we get to the next topic, simply called On the Waves. Now what's going on, Nancy? Now Harriet in adolescence is experiencing so many 
um, emotions, um, turbulent um, issues and things that are troubling her. Her uh, mother had died when she was very young. She missed her mother. Her father moved to take a new call in Boston. So she was uprooted. And she had experienced conversion as an adolescent. Her father was was so happy that her daughter, that he now knew that his daughter was a Christian. And yet it wasn't long before another minister questioned that conversion experience, um, thought that she really wasn't old enough to truly be a convert. And so this sparked a crisis in her life, and she doubted her whether her conversion was real. She missed her mother. And so she wrote to her, one of her sisters that she was on the waves, which I thought was a beautiful description of that time of life in adolescence when people are just kind of tossed back and forth and are struggling to learn how to live with themselves, how to find trust in God, how to really um, make friends with their own emotional life. And that's what she was struggling with, like so many adolescents do. Now I want you to talk about, we mean to turn over the West. Well, in that chapter, Harriet is now a young woman. She's 21. Her father, Lyman Beecher, has been asked to, um, to become the president of a seminary in what was then the West in Cincinnati, Ohio. And so the family um, treks out there. There was no train um, at that time, so they had to go in stagecoach and by river travel. And Harriet went with her uh, older sister um, among the family members, Catherine, who was a school teacher. And Harriet and Catherine were going to open a school in Cincinnati, a girls' school. And when they said, we mean to turn over the West, they were thinking of cultivation, like you turn over soil and plant seeds in it. And what they wanted to do was to plant the seeds of education for young women. And they had great visions of how their school was going to become a model school that would be replicated all over the Western states. And they had great dreams of what they were going to accomplish through education. So the phrase, turn over the West, was really their um, dream, their ambition of cultivation. And it, it was about education, and it was about bringing education to girls so that these girls could grow up to um, be a good influence in their society. Nancy Kester is our guest uh, from Augsburg College in Minneapolis. The book is called Harriet Beecher Stowe, A Spiritual Life. Erdman's is the publisher. Uh, The next topic, Nancy, nobody knows who. What's happening now? Well, now what's happening is that Harriet has fallen in love with a seminary professor who teaches at her father's school, Lane Seminary, in Cincinnati, Ohio. And um, he's a recent widower. His his first wife died in a cholera epidemic, and she has been a comfort to, to him. His name is Kelvin Stowe, and she is about to get married. And as she is waiting um, for people to arrive for the wedding, which will be held in her father's house, as was customary in those days, she writes to a friend back east, and she says, in just a few hours, your old friend Harriet Beecher will turn into nobody knows who. That was her way of saying that she really couldn't comprehend what marriage was going to be. She knew it would change her life forever, and she could not predict what it would be like to be a wife and a mother. She knew that it would change her, but there was no way she could really predict what all that would be. To her, it was kind of like going over Niagara Falls in a barrel, and who knows what would be on the other side. And so nobody knows who um, was her way of kind of expressing what that felt like to be on the brink of a great change in her life. And, uh, of course, she did find out that even after she got married, she was still the same person. She still um, had a passion for writing. She loved life. She loved beauty. She loved children. And now what would change is that she would have her own children, and then she would have to figure out 
how in the world she was going to find time to write um, while she was also a mother. A deep, immortal longing. What's that about? Well, that expresses how, um, after Harriet became a mother, um, she experienced the things that that all parents do. Although in the um, the nineteenth century, it was so much harder um, because there were no modern conveniences like we know, and everything was so much more work. And she became really mired in in the drudgery of laundry and cooking. And they had several children. They had seven children in all, Calvin and Harriet. And yet her dream was to become a writer. And how on earth could that ever happen if she was, um, you know, just struggling to kind of make ends meet? Her husband, Calvin, as a seminary professor, did not make much money. She found that she was able to make a little bit of money by publishing magazine articles and newspaper articles, and finally she collected enough so that she could put together her first book. She went back east to meet with a publisher, and she and Kelvin wrote back and forth to each other, and he encouraged her to be a writer. She told him that she had a deep, immortal longing to do something for God while she yet lived. Her mother had died young, and as so often happened in those days, women died in childbirth or became exhausted through the rigors of raising so many children in those days. And her deep immortal longing, she said, was to do something for God while she still um, could live. And that was what she expressed to Kelvin in the letters that she wrote back home. And he wrote to her, you must be a literary woman, which was a beautiful, a wonderful thing for him to say. Um, he realized that she had a great talent as a writer, and he really wanted her to find an outlet for that. And I think that was really unusual in those times for a husband to be so supportive of his wife. But they, they were really mutually supporting. They each did all that they could for the other. And so that deep immortal longing was their hope that somehow, rather than just being mired in, you know, in drudgery and in the difficulties that they encountered, that somehow they would be able to rise above that and do something that would make a difference in the world. Now I want you to talk, Nancy, about If I Live. That's the seventh chapter. Uh, what's Harriet thinking here? What's happening? Well, in that chapter, um, now the family has moved from Ohio back to New England, where Calvin, Harriet's husband, has taken a position teaching at Bowdoin College in Brunswick, Maine. And at this time in their lives, they have had a great personal tragedy. One of their children died in a cholera epidemic, and um, this was just unspeakably difficult for Harriet. During that time, she realized, she wrote later, um, what black slave women experienced when their children were sold away from them. And that experience of loss and grief, she felt she could identify with their losses, too, um, and during that time, not only did she have this, this personal tragedy, but during that time, the Fugitive Slave Law was passed in 1850. And um, she had gone back east, as I mentioned, and uh, there was a lot of resistance in the north to the Fugitive Slave Law. And one of Harriet's sisters-in-law wrote to her and said, Hattie, which was her nickname, Hattie, if I could use a pen as you do, I would write something that would show the world how wicked slavery is. And Harriet crumpled that letter in her hand, and she rose up and said, I will write something. I will if I live. And so that, that phrase, if I live, expressed her determination that she was going to write something about slavery that would help people see that slavery was wrong and needed to be stopped. And that leads to Chapter 8, Uncle Tom's Cabin, The Story of the Age. Fill us in, Nancy, and then we'll take a break and come back afterwards. Okay. Um, Uncle Tom's Cabin was the book that Harriet wrote um, as a protest against slavery. And many people have said it was actually a sermon. And I think that's true. Harriet was a Christian author. She wrote from deep Christian faith, and her book 
was like a sermon because it produced conviction and then conversion and then the will to to make changes, the will to um, to do something that would help other people, the will to change things for the better. So the story um, of Uncle Tom's Cabin really began as uh, a magazine serial that was published in installments, much like the uh, novels of Charles Dickens over in England. And uh, Harriet started out to tell the stories of slaves. And what she did that was very, very innovative for her time was that she made these slaves into the main characters of her story. Nancy Kester, our guest. We've got more right after this. Stay with us. It's the Pat Williams Weekend Power Hour on WTLN, AM 950 in Orlando. More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on the new 950 WTLN. Hi, folks. This is Alan Thick, and as one of those TV dads, I had to teach the kids about handling money, so here goes. Rule number one. Don't mess with the IRS. They're cracking down this year. They can garnish your paycheck, levy your bank account, even your home or business could be up for grabs over unpaid taxes. It's all true. But it's also true that they're offering a new way out. It's called the Fresh Start Initiative, an important government program for tax debt forgiveness. It's one of the biggest breaks the IRS has ever offered, so now's the time. You could qualify for a tax settlement that's 75% lower than before these recent changes. The experts at Optima Tax Relief will work to get you the best deal possible. Don't mess with the IRS. For tax help you need, for tax help you can trust, call Optima for a free consultation. Call 800-711-5743. That's 800-711-5743. 800-711-5743. Some restrictions apply. For complete details, please visit OptimaTaxRelief.com. We thought we were doing the right thing. I mean, why go out and hire professionals when we have people right here in the congregation who have yeah. experience in construction? That's right. I mean, Elder Jones was a carpenter for over 50 years. <laughs> but boy, were we wrong. You know, I thought I knew drywall. I thought I knew about plumbing. And we're supposed to know all the rules and regulations and permits and even the laws that are required to just renovate our own fellowship hall. Now we're really in hot water, too, with our local government. And we have to start all over again. Every day in Central Florida, well-meaning local churches run afoul of local government regulations for construction. The legal process for church construction projects is complex. Let the Nemo Group assist you with this complicated legal process. The Nemo Group is a Christian construction company. The Nemo Group specializes in church renovation and addition projects. The Nemo Group will help your congregation build a wall of protection that will ensure your renovation or add-on is safe, successful, and legal. Call 407-504-6966 or visit NemoGroup.com today. That's N-Y-M-O Group.com. The Nemo Group is a member of the Orlando Network. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new 950 WTLN. And now, here's Pat. Nancy Kester, our guest from Minneapolis, and uh, we're talking about her book, Harriet Beecher Stowe, A Spiritual Life. Nancy, before the break, you were uh, talking about Uncle Tom's Cabin, and I want you to just pick up your thought, please, and continue. Yes, I will. Thank you so much. The uh, The story of Uncle Tom's Cabin, as I was saying, was a sermon which was meant to change people's hearts and minds. And um, she did so by telling a story. She knew that there were all kinds of technical arguments going on about slavery legal, theological, economic, and so forth. But what she wanted to do was to reach into people's hearts by telling them the stories of these characters in her book. And she succeeded to an extent that she never dreamed possible. Her book became a bestseller overnight. It became the best-selling novel of the century, and it sold very well in, um, in Great Britain as well as in America. And I'd like to read just a brief um, sentence where she really summarizes her view of the Christian faith. Um, and he, she puts these words into the mouth of her character, Tom, who was a slave. Um, and this is what Tom says. It is impossible to love our enemies on our own strength, but he, meaning Jesus, gives it to us, and that's the victory. When we can love and pray over all and through all, 
The battle's passed and the victories come. Glory be to God. What that was about was loving enemies and overcoming injustice. And that was really the central theme of her story. Um, she has a scene in which her character, Tom, dies. He's beaten to death. It's a terrible scene in the story. And he has the words of Jesus on his lips. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In her book, as a result of his um, self-sacrificing love, that is the character of Tom, um, other people are converted, and uh, the plot goes in a chain reaction in which someone decides to set their slaves free. And so all kinds of things happen because of Tom's faithfulness and victory. So uh, the story became um, world famous and catapulted Harriet into a new role in her life. Nothing was ever the same for her after that. Um, She could never have predicted the results of this story, but um, it changed her life. And more important, it changed the lives of many Americans and moved them toward um, the view that slavery was wrong. Then we have a chapter called, I Grant I Am a Woman. Well, there we have some of the the reactions for and against Uncle Tom's cabin. And um, Harriet's um, house was flooded with fan mail that came in as a result of her book, and also hate mail. And she got into a conflict with, um, with a minister whom she had identified in her book as someone who supported slavery. He threatened a lawsuit. She came back at him and said, well, if you really don't hold those views, then why don't you go in print and say so? I'm sure everyone would love to know what your views really are. And, of course, this um, minister never did follow up on that. But she wrote to him, I grant I am a woman. She was quoting Shakespeare. um, And what she was saying is that, yes, I know that women are not supposed to on these issues, but I, I felt that I had to do it. And now she was saying to him, now is your chance to say what you think is right. And so she, um, she kind of used her position of womanhood, as it was understood in those days, um, to challenge him. And she ended up um, not having a lawsuit because he realized that he was up against a force greater than himself. Tackling um, Harriet Beecher Stowe was not not a good idea because she was so articulate and she had such a wonderful sense of humor and such a strong faith that um, she was able to turn the the barbs that were um, said against her often to turn them in her favor. So that book, that chapter rather, was about some of the the conflicts that resulted from Uncle Tom's Cabin and how she was able to. Um, really rise above those most of the time. Harriet Takes London. How did that happen? Well, Harriet was um, a famous author now, and she was invited to go to, um, to the U.K., and she went on a grand tour with her book. Her husband and brother and other family members went with her, and I just thought that was kind of a fun chapter title, kind of playful, um, as a way of, of kind of showcasing what a wonderful time they had in their travels abroad. And she really felt like she was in a fairy tale because she had gone from being this struggling wife and mother, um, slopping around with the laundry and trying to keep her head above water, going from that to fame as an author. And she was um, honored, and there were receptions held for her in great castles, and it really was like a a fairy tale that she was living. She could hardly believe it. Um, so she went on this great um, book tour, I guess we could would call it now, and was a celebrity in London, got to know the, the wealthy and powerful people and the rich and famous people. She met Charles Dickens, um, not on this tour, but on another one. She met uh, Queen Victoria. So she really had a, an amazing experience going from being a rather um, threadbare, she would describe herself as um, not much to look at, she said, but here she was among the the great and powerful of London, and everyone was 
admiring her book and um, and telling her how much they sympathized with her anti-slavery stance. So she was really, um, really experiencing a, a dream come true. How about a reformer's pilgrimage, Nancy? Well, she continued her travels um, after the grand tour of, of the U.K. Uh, she went on a pilgrimage to Geneva, where um, Calvin had his church. She went to the Alps and wrote an exquisite language about the beauty, the glory of God that she experienced in nature there in these scenes in the Alps. She went to, to Wittenberg to see the uh, Reformation sites where Martin Luther had started the Reformation back in 1517. And that really was a, repil- a pilgrimage for her because she herself had become a reformer. And she identified very closely with other reformers, with people who had stood up against something that they thought was wrong and needed to be changed, and had wrestled with this problem of, well, everyone else thinks that that this is okay. What if I'm wrong? What if I'm I'm misguided? And, you know, like Luther and others, she wrestled with that about her own work. And she felt very inspired when she went to visit the Luther sites in Wittenberg, and that was part of her pilgrimage. And so I called it a reformer's pilgrimage because she was was a reformer who was trying to understand and walk in the footsteps of other reformers. By thy wrath are we troubled. In that segment, she has now returned to the States after her uh, time in Great Britain and her tour of Europe. And during this time, the United States is moving closer and closer toward the Civil War. Um, more and more things are happening. The tensions are mounting. The, um, the uh, troubles in Kansas have begun with lots of violence out there among the settlers over the question of slavery. And um, Harriet really saw you know, the wrath of God moving in the country. And her, her statement, by thy wrath we are troubled, came from a devotional article that she wrote, quoting one of the Psalms. And she was contempla- contemplating the glory of God, but also the wrath of God, as she saw that unfolding in events. I think people at that time knew, they sensed that um, the country was was moving toward war, and it was a very troubling period. It was like living in a time when there was a huge storm gathering and the dark clouds and the lightning and the thunder rumbling, and they knew the whole thing was going to break out, and it was just a matter of time. When is it going to hit? Nancy Kester has been our guest. We have a wrap-up right after this on the Pat Williams Weekend Power Hour, WTLN AM 915 Orlando. Of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on the new 950 WTLN. Geico presents a man who just saved on his motorcycle insurance. What up? Evan here. Question. You like apples? I'll get to that in a minute. First, check out my motorcycle. Flames? Yep. Saddlebags? Yep. Room for two? Negatory! Sorry, ladies. I ride solo. Now, wait for it. How you like them apples? Aw, don't cry. Ensuring this beast was crazy easy. Called Geico and boom, saved enough to buy a sidecar. Now, if you dry your tears, I might just let you ride in it. Geico Motorcycle. See how much you could say. Noah fans, would you like to win an epic paid trip to New York to attend the movie's world premiere? That's right. You and a guest will get the red carpet treatment at the event to celebrate director Darren Aronofsky's big-budget dramatization of the story of Noah, an entertaining and thought-provoking film that explores the biblical themes of judgment, mercy, and forgiveness. He'll be attending the same event as the movie stars Russell Crowe, Emma Watson, Jennifer Connelly, and Anthony Hopkins. But you need to enter right away. Go online to WTLN.com. Listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new 950 WTLN. And now, here's Pat. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Weekend Power Hour on WTLN. Shane Claiborne, our guest in that first half hour, uh, along with Tony Campolo, talking about Red Letter Revolution. 
And then Nancy Kester from Minneapolis, uh, the author of Harriet Beecher Stowe. Fascinating uh, to listen to Nancy uh, describe the life of the great Harriet Beecher Stowe. Uh, Please visit my website. It's patwilliams.com, the Twitter page, Orlando Magic Pat. And my most recent book has just been released. It's called The Mission is Remission, Hope for Battling Cancer. Uh, HCI is the publisher. It's in bookstores now and up on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com as well. Uh, I invite you uh, to take your family to church tomorrow. That's important. And then have a wonderful week ahead and enjoy this wonderful weather that we have here in Central Florida through the month of March. Pat Williams saying so long on WTLN AM 950 in Orlando. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the Pat Williams Power Hour. Join us again next week at this same time on the intersection of faith and reason. The new 950 WTLN. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.